Hey everyone, welcome to CQ Speaks. Just a quick note before we hear my interview with Kristen Case. Her excerpt will be broken up into two parts. The first toward the beginning of our interview and the second at the end. So please stay tuned for that and enjoy. Welcome everyone to CQ Speaks, the voice of the Carolina Quarterly. I'm Colin DeKesheter, poetry editor of the Carolina Quarterly. And today, I'm joined by Kristen Case to discuss her work, Uncertainty, in the Spring and Summer 2021 issue. Kristen Case is professor of English at the University of Maine, Farmington. Her works include the poetry collections Little Arias and Principles of Economics, which won the 2018 Gatewood Prize, and the literary critical book American Pragmatism and Poetic Practice, Cross Currents from Emerson to Susan Howe. She is the recipient of the Maine Literary Award in Poetry, a McDowell Fellowship, a Monson Arch Residency, and the Trustee Professorship at the University of Maine, Farmington. Kristen, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So I'll say off the bat that I was actually reading your book, American Pragmatism and Poetic Practice, when this issue was released, and it was really nice to come across your work because I was uh, enjoying reading your scholarship, particularly with respect to the way that you weave yourself and, and your process of writing into the work. It's something that I that I hope to do, and I think that many want to do. And in the work, you use scholarship on Wittgenstein to investigate ideas of certainty in language and other areas and mirror his relationships with your own relationships. And we'll get into the essay more thoroughly as we move forward. But my first question is really more about your process as a whole. But uh, what sort of divisions do you see, if any, between your research, your academic writing, and your creative writing? That's a great question. I mean, in some ways, I think my whole career has been a a process of bringing those two things together. I was telling a student of mine the other day that when I was in college, I, um, I was an English major and I won a poetry contest and they posted posters about the winners of this contest, like around the English department. And I was so kind of mortified (laughs) that my English professors and peers would find out that I was like secretly moonlighted as a poet. I think I might've even taken down one of the posters. (laughs) Um, And so, and I like, even at the time, I remember being like, God, why do I feel this way? But it really felt like a very, very separate world to me and separate ways of thinking and separate intellectual modes when I was young. And at the same time, I was always bothered by that and sort of wanted to investigate why. And I think part of it is I wasn't sort of an official poetry student. Like I wasn't in a creative writing program as an undergraduate. I took maybe one workshop. Mostly I read poems on my own. And I felt there was a kind of personal sense about that work and a kind of, I felt a kind of ownership of it that was really different from the way that I felt as a as a kind of official student of literature, which involved for me a lot of kind of like performing the things that I felt that I was supposed to perform, like getting good grades and sort of measuring up to what I thought an English major was supposed to be. And so one thing was quite internal and private, and the other was very much about public performance. And one felt sort of official, and one felt unofficial, and one felt sort of somewhat objective, and the other felt very subjective. And one felt associated with kind of like achievement and something kind of more hard-edged and official, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a, a slow process of breaking all that down. And I think the big um, thank you 
it's very lovely that you're reading my my book, although I always feel a little embarrassed. I feel like I was, I didn't really, didn't know what I was doing as a scholar <laughs> when I wrote that. Uh, so uh, apologies for whatever egregious things I may have said. But, um, but I do, you know, one of the delights of writing that book was learning to feel okay about transgressing that boundary and then like learning that interesting things can happen when kind of poetic language in quotes rubs up against academic language in quotes and and how that like there's a kind of useful friction I think between those modes so it was a long answer to your question but yeah it feels like an ongoing process of kind of breaking down those walls no no that was a perfect answer and I, I really I love the idea of a useful friction and I think that that friction is is there in the essay um, I also want to say that there's definitely no need to apologize for your work in that book. Uh, I'm sort of hoping to write a dissertation that uh, lets the poetic and the academic uh, meet a little more than usual. But I also love the book as a whole. I mean, its structure, the way it sort of maneuvers through source texts and letters and diaries and calendars and your own experiences in engaging with the text that you're discussing. Um, I just really enjoyed it. And I think it's an all too rare example of what scholarship can do. Thank you. Of course. So I think before we dive into talking about the essay, that it would benefit our listeners to hear some of your language um, and the maneuvers that you make in it. Would you mind reading an excerpt for us? Sure. I, I'd love to. And I'll just say, I think that there may be pieces of this that are not fully explained in our conversation. And the one thing I want to just make sure to say is that one of the things the poem deals with and returns to is Wittgenstein's lover, Francis Skinner. There's a, just an absolutely stunning description of their relationship in Ray Monk's biography, The Duty of Genius, uh, which is an incredible biography and everybody should read it. And by all accounts, Wittgenstein was kind of a jerk to Francis and had a lot of shame about their relationship. And Francis was utterly devoted to Wittgenstein and died quite young. So in addition to thinking through Wittgenstein's last work, Uncertainty, the, the essay deals with their relationship. So there's some references to Francis. Mm -hmm. So this is section five. Riding my bicycle back to my desk, I noticed the single meandering track in the dirt made by my bicycle earlier in the day. It is startling to be confronted with my past self in this way. When I feel that another person's desire for me carries with it the secret wish that I were dead, is this a mistake or a mental disturbance? Whose? In the glass house of lovelessness, there is a dark chamber. I read art books, look at pictures of art, consider Francis. The window in front of my desk is a glass grid of 25 squares marked off by white wooden frames. Above this grid is a half circle of glass divided into four sections, each divided again into three. Light penetrates the layers of leaves, then penetrates these surfaces. It is strange to remember that this occurs sequentially. A numbness attends certain cognitive states. These are several occasions and the same occasion. A winnowing of shimmering difference into a single darkness, dispersion of sensation into the surround. The trunk and branches of the almost dead hemlock are stark, lichen-marked. It has to do with the feeling of being wished dead. Francis to Wittgenstein. I feel very unhappy that I should have given you cause to write that you feel that I'm away from you. 
It is a terrible thing that I have acted in a way that might loosen what is between us. It would be a catastrophe for me if anything happened to our relation. Please forgive me for what I have done. I know that it is likely a matter of translation, but I am moved by the urgent simplicity of the phrase, I feel very unhappy. I can't imagine uttering this phrase. I can type it, however, with little feeling of self-consciousness. I am only depressing the small black squares on this mark-making machine. I feel very unhappy. Mornings you feel the little winter inside of August. In the trees, a single hermit thrush bodies the air in sound, which penetrates as if to loosen what is between. I consult the weather of the future and check to see what my device has collected while I slept. Through the canopy, the early sunlight finds the trunks of two maples, which radiate accordingly through the comparative gloom. Beautiful. Thank you. So, as is made clear in your reading, you use Wittgenstein's Letters with Francis, a biography, and his final work on certainty to kind of work through ideas of language and a trauma or a painful moment. And the essay is about many things. But one of the main things it circles around is the idea of the inability to express in language our pain. And as you write, Wittgenstein said that pain has no place in the language game, but I felt like this work kind of wanted to take that to task, maybe not explicitly, but by balancing the kind of theoretical thinking about language and about pain and uncertainty and the wish for a wordless being uh, with an extremely detailed, precise poetic language about the actual world as opposed to these these glass houses that are constructed can you can you talk about your relationship to or your desire for precision in language and maybe where you fall in Wittgenstein's statement that that pain has no place in the language game it's a really interesting two-part question I'll tackle the philosophical question first I mean I don't know if I believe it or not that you know Wittgenstein's claim is we say this word pain but we can't get at each other's actual experience in that way. We can only get at the word. And clearly there's something right about that, right? That we don't have total transparency and that we can never fully know the interiority of another. Uh, and language language gets us so far, but it doesn't get us into the real thing. And I think Wittgenstein gets at something about the irreducibility of the experience of pain and the kind of deep personal quality of it that I think seems right on the other hand, there's something about that very image, right? What he says is, um, suppose everyone has a box with something in it. We call it a beetle. And he puts beetle in quotes. No one can look into anyone else's box. And everyone says he knows what a beetle is only by looking at his beetle. Mm. And I mean, I guess this gets to your precision of language question, too, that on the one hand, I... I think there's something right about that inaccessibility, but Wittgenstein's very mm, precision in describing that situation and in particular the kind of resonance of the beetle image in its mm -hmm. box. I, at the same time, I feel a kind of kinship with or closeness to that description that makes me feel like I know something about Wittgenstein's interiority and feeling about pain. So, right. I, you know, so I, I feel both things at once. And I think a lot of what this, this essay is trying to do is to kind of um, recognize that there are limits to what we can know about what another person is experiencing or thinking. Mm -hmm. And at the same time to kind of run 
a whole bunch of experiments to see how close we can get or to see what can be revealed um, and how. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know if I have any clearer of a map of that territory than anybody else, but it is, uh, I feel both the distance and the proximity to others through Wittgenstein's writing very strongly. Yeah, I was really struck by the the um, issue of the knowledge of another's interiority in the essay. And what really struck me was the presence of the you. Um, and we learned that in the act of writing the essay that you're actually sort of constructing a world of the you's thinking as you write, sort of building the you's thought in the glass houses that you write about, and then pointing it back at the self, um, those thoughts, which I thought was a fascinating idea. And I know a lot of writers sort of think about the ethics of using others' language or putting words in people's mouths. Um, and there's some of that anxiety around Wittgenstein's letters with his use of code. And there's a kind of through line um, of consent in the essay. And so I'm curious to what extent, if any, some of the uncertainty around language in the essay is an uncertainty around the ethics of inventing the used language. That's really great. I love that way of thinking about it. I, I wouldn't have framed it that way myself, but I think that's right. And maybe to expand that out a little bit, I think it's very much about the ethics of constructing a you, period, mm. um, which which we're all doing all the time. And so part of the anxiety that I was trying to unpack in the essay which actually it's very interesting that it was categorized as an essay. I always think of this as, so I'm like training myself to say that, but I always think of this as a poem, which is strange. Um, it looks like an essay more than it looks like a poem. But um, anyway, whatever it is, one of the things that I was trying to do was write both to see how closely I could try to construct that language of another, but also investigate the limits of that and the ethical questions that attend that. And I think they attend just our mental formulations. They're like we're all running around with like a caricature of other people in our heads all the time to whom we ascribe all kinds of thoughts and intentions. And and we need to do that. You know, theory of mind is kind of like a lot of ethical stuff is sort of predicated on that. But at the same time, how absurdly presumptuous of us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's so a way that the you operates in the text is definitely entering into that. Now I feel like I was being a little um, presumptuous in, in constructing a you um, uh, with respect to confining this to an essay. I should have known better knowing your work. Uh, I do have essay, though, in scare quotes. It's funny because I'm the poetry editor of the magazine um, and also the podcast host. And so for the sake of, of uh, the powers that be and also my listeners, I've been trying to get away from I- interviewing solely poets about their poetry. <laughs> So sorry to disappoint. No, no, no. Now, now we get to have my cake and I eat it too. <laughs> um, and it also gets back to what we were discussing in the beginning and, and your ability to blend poetic and, in this case, essayistic language. Mm-hmm. And that actually leads me to something that I wanted to ask. Um, so with respect to the personal quality of the work and its sort of status, let's say, between an essay and a poem, um, which which does alter the status of the you, because now I want to sort of speak the way we're taught to speak about poetry and say, quote, the speaker instead of you, it does throw it into a kind of entirely different light. Yeah. And I would never use the term personal essay to describe the work, but nevertheless, my understanding of the voice does sort of begin to change with when, when considering these things. Um, so if my questions begin to seem a little too personal now, let me know. Okay. Um, so one of my interests since my daughter was born is the poetics of domesticity and specifically how writers engage with the domestic. And so I was really struck with how routine folds into the narrative of the work. Um, 
early on you relate this sort of ephemeral or or elusive nature of language or or you call them objects exceeding their names and then almost as a way to correct that difficulty or or elusivity in naming um that precision you begin quote various programs of self-regulation which i loved um and then later you realize which is another beautifully phrased moment that your body quote resists paying attention to the knowledge I'm trying to articulate. Mm. And in this instance, that glass house that you're making in your mind uh, isn't actually a place that one can live in. And in that moment, you start to rearrange your actual house, um, something I also do often. Um, And we get these really beautiful descriptions of your home or one's home peppered throughout the work. And so houses seem obviously central, whether it's the glass houses or your own or Wittgenstein's living spaces and and the house he designed. but what I want to ask is, can, can you talk about maybe the relationship to the domestic, maybe in your writing in general, or the importance of your home's descriptions, or how you were thinking about domestic space in the composition of the work? Um, that's a great question and a great thing to to, to notice and, and think about. I mean, I think in, in my work in general, I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with physical spaces and how they feel and kind of can spend way too much time rearranging the furniture of my actual house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in the poem, I was thinking about thought as a place that we live. And so our thoughts as having, and this is Wittgenstein kind of, I mean, I think I was getting, I'm stealing that from Wittgenstein, but thought like language, like a space that we that we live in and that kind of colors everything for us in a certain kind of way and that things in those spaces fit together in certain ways. And, you know, we don't reject a particular idea just because of its particular qualities. We also reject it because it doesn't go with our other furniture, right? And so we see this all the time, like, maybe that idea is associated with a whole bunch of other ideas that I definitely know I don't like. And so I can't, you know, can't make it fit with my other. And that's, that's a William James thing too, the sort of mental furniture of our minds. We like it to match. And so I think there is a way in which I was really trying to think through the way that certain kinds of thoughts feel and how we feel in them. And the glass houses thing is also recognizing that a lot of our thinking we do do together with other people, like we construct things together and those things are real. Those mental places are real, but at the same time, we never know, we can never get a quite an accurate picture of them because we know the part we contribute and we never quite know the part the other person contributes. And so there's this question of like, right, am I just building a bridge out to nothing? Mm. Or is the other person sort of meeting me? And I think it's always a bit of both, probably in most situations. And the kind of unknowability of that, uh, what it is that we're building in the thought world. And I guess the last thing I would say about that is that a thing that probably unites all of my work is thinking about writing and thinking as these abstract, abstracted things that have to do with obviously intellectual work and then the wild feeling of how divorced that is when one has small children or just when one is a person in the world from our domestic uh, dailiness of domestic life and always, always, always wanting to unite those things. And there's a kind of feminist agenda happening. Um, But also even deeper than that, I think, is just a desire to bring ideas that are important to me kind of home, uh, mm-hmm. literally, and sort of find their connection to the dailiness of my life. 
Yeah, I, I loved all the connections to poetry and to process and to just what it means to be a, a being in this fabric of being. Um, and it also made me think of the moment where you ask what it means to have a room in someone else's house. And I just wrote next to that, poetics. Um, I thought it got to the heart of the work, for me at least, and, and the questions around the construction of a you, um, that knowledge of someone's interiority. And I thought that the writing around spaces and its connection to thinking through certainty and subjectivity was just really engaging and new uh, and thought-provoking. And I, I look forward to rereading it after our chat. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Well, maybe we have time for just one more question and then we'll, we'll hear an excerpt. But, and maybe we've already kind of gotten to this, but I was really interested in the idea of time and um, the moment in the essay. You mentioned that the this suggests the near at hand. And I was like, mm -hmm. I paused for a while over that. What is the this in that, in that moment? And also another moment, the way that you regard light moving through trees sequentially. Mm -hmm. That's another moment where I was like, this is definitely a poem. <laughs> <laughs> It was really, really beautiful and, and really, really, you know, precise, literally thinking about, you know, the speed of light. Uh, and these moments really stand out as something that sort of mark themselves against the kind of more uh, scholarly thinking that's going on. Um, the pouring through Wittgenstein's letters, um, this uh, his work on certainty, etc. Um, so I was wondering if you can just talk a little bit about the kind of decision, whether it was conscious or not, to sort of include those, let's call them moments of being um, in this work. Yeah, sure. I mean, what I'll say is that this was really hard to write. And it was hard to write because it gets, you know, it just gets to some experiences and feelings that are really kind of unbearable. <laughs> and but I wanted to think about them. And I wanted to look at them and not be sort of overwhelmed by them. And so I think the larger project of which the poem is kind of a an artifact was thinking through as clearly and carefully as I could this whole constellation of issues about how people treat each other and speak mm -hmm. to each other and what we can know about other people's intentions and et cetera, et cetera. And in particular, sort of the ways that those questions have hinged for me on some like really personal traumatic experiences. And so how to think about those things without getting overwhelmed by the experiential memories. And so that was really important. And I think that time that you are noticing was me sort of like very deliberately coming back again and coming back again and sort of grounding myself in the place that I was to return to this really kind of painful and difficult stuff without letting it overwhelm me. So what you're noticing there is actually a sort of tactic for kind of surviving this material. And I wrote most of it, actually, some of it at my house, but I wrote quite a bit of it at a residency. Um, and I felt really intensely grateful for the residency because I remember thinking like I couldn't have written this at home. There was kind of too much darkness. You know, as you know, as a parent, you can't be holding that all the time uh, in a consistent way. Like you have to be emotionally available for children, especially. You can't be living in the the darkest places in your mind, it would be irresponsible. And, uh, and so it was really, at least for me, it would be. And so it was really good to go to a place where it was like safe mm -hmm. for me to sort of live in the darkest places in my own mind. And so, yeah, I think that returning again and again to like the physical place was partly about being able to process that material in a way that didn't just overwhelm me. 
is really felt in the process of reading it, the way it, the way it transitions. There's such clarity in those moments of sort of empirical description of, of what you're actually seeing in those moments are really, really, they're really beautiful and also really, really emotionally palpable, especially with respect to them being an actual transition, you know, out of the darker, more difficult aspects of the work. Uh, so that felt very humanizing and real. And <laughs> I'm yeah. glad I always, I always worry those parts are really boring. So no, they were, that, I loved them. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Again, those were the moments where I was like, this is a poem. <laughs> it's in the nonfiction section, but I'm pretty yeah. sure. This is a poem. <laughs> okay. Well, our listeners are just going to have to get a copy and decide for themselves. Um, but I think that just about wraps up our time. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is really lovely. Yeah. Thank you, Kristen. Wittgenstein retracts the wish that Francis had died in subsequent sentences. Though, of course, it may only be an accident of translation, I am interested in this strange grammatical formulation, as though Wittgenstein were conjuring not a single imaginary event, but a whole imaginary world in which Francis had died. Francis did, in fact, die of polio in 1941. By this time, the biography notes the relationship, quote, had deteriorated. The wanting dead with which I am concerned, if real at all, is, of course, the unconscious kind which has to do with one's being a woman and not with one's personal qualities or the personal qualities of the person or persons who may or may not unconsciously and surely only momentarily wish me dead. I consider which of the following, if any, Wittgenstein would allow. No one really wishes me dead. I do not believe that anyone really wishes me dead. I know no one really wishes me dead. I may be mistaken, but I do not believe that anyone really wishes me dead. When I am feeling very unhappy, I turn to the pages in my art books with reproductions of paintings by Agnes Martin. In one of these, alternating dark and light gray, gray stripes are overlaid with a grid of small rectangles drawn in pencil, which creates a feeling of infinite repetition in all directions. This painting is called The Tree. After looking at it for some time, the sensation of being wished dead disperses into image. The book the table, and the screened-in porch in which I am sitting. Wittgenstein. The argument I may be dreaming is senseless for this reason. If I am dreaming, this remark is being dreamed as well, and indeed is also being dreamed that these words have any meaning. I touch the tiny black squares of the mark-making machine, which makes a clicking sound, as if to remind me someone's home. Thank you for listening to CQ Speaks. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at thecarolinaquarterly.com and follow us on Instagram at carolinaquarterly and on Twitter at nc underscore quarterly. Remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you listen and be on the lookout for our upcoming issues. Until next time, read well, write well, and thanks for listening.